Do you like video games? Of course you do. Do you believe people should have positive mental health? Also, of course you do. Then come join me on Dragoon Effect, an audio-only Let's Play podcast that cares about your mental health. Come listen as I play through games like Alan Wake, Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, Doki Doki Literature Club, and talk about my life and my mental health and encourage others to do what's best for them and talk about it openly. We hope to see you soon. Oh no, it's golden years time. Give me the millennial fair. Welcome to the RPG After Years, your weekly show covering all things RPGs from the past, present, and future. I'm Scott, and with me today is our hostess with the mostest, all the way from our European division. I'm Bill Odio. I'll destroy everything. <laughs> this is episode 102, and we're here today for a, re- a review episode. We're going to be reviewing Square's interesting, episodic SNES game. Live Alive. Live a Live. Live a Leave whatever it's called i've never was sure how to pronounce it it's live alive baby it's the eight games in one special Yeah, it's the long, long-awaited Live Alive review. We've been working on this one for quite a while now, but yep. <laughs> we got Welcome there eventually. Air quotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what better time than the present? Because, uh, you know, they just announced that remake not too long ago, yep. a couple weeks ago. I'm super excited for that. Yeah, I can't believe I'll, it. I'll definitely buy it and then not play it. <laughs> it's because we played it. You know if we hadn't played it, that it wouldn't have definitely never would have happened. They were like, know, wait, there's more than two people interested over in America? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. 
Yeah. But since it's a review, <laughs> we won't be doing any catch up today or anything like that. It's going to be a one. Well, it's not going to be a one shot. We're thinking this is going to be a two parter. Hopefully not three. We'll see. Um, we're going to do <clears throat> development history today and gameplay if we have time. Um, Cause we are mm-hmm. on a, a schedule here. Uh, but before that, just so we don't fall behind, here are a couple of quick show updates. Okay, so first up is the RPG Club. For those that may be tuning in that aren't regular listeners, the RPG Club is a segment that we do every other episode on this show. It's like a book club, but for RPGs. Um, so we, along with the community, play the same sections of the same games around the same time frame. The current game Sometimes. is... yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we fuck it up. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes I have to do three segments in one go. <laughs> yeah, but you never hit your third strike, right? Yeah, I haven't got a third strike yet. Okay, just the won't. two. All right, awesome. <laughs> um, the current game is Chrono Trigger, and the current checkpoint is actually to beat the game. We're on the last section, and that is due uh, Sunday, March 20th. So by the time you're listening to this, you only got a few days left, so get to it. Um, and then, so have you have you beaten the game yet, Scott? No, I spent last time I played it. I did like all the side quests, including the DS. Oh, the awful side DS quests. ones. Oh. It was it was terrible, dude. Not to <laughs> like, I hated it so much. I, it took me an entire stream to get through that DS side quest. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad Square are consistent with their bad dungeons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anybody's listening and on the fence about whether or not to do it, I would say only do it if you're a hardcore completionist because <laughs> it's it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> the time investment. Um, but yeah, so I, I'll probably finish it the next time I play it. Um, and we'll be, let's see, do we normally wait one or two weeks before we start noms up bill? I can never remember two weeks. We kind of, everything's on a two week schedule with the club. That's how I like to remember it. Okay. So it's two weeks between segments and we have two weeks until the nominations, two weeks until the vote. And then a couple of weeks, then we start again. All right. So it'll give us guys a break between each Right. Each segment and uh, each game, really. I think our yeah, community hates to waiting, so we're the ones that yeah, enjoy the do. break. <laughs> I, I can understand it as a listener. I'd be the one. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Well, let's next game. We'll start up now. But no, no. We need to. We need time to process and get us get our shit together. But, yeah. yeah, it'll be fun playing FF6 next. Oh god, getting uh, Not that I dislike FF6, but I, I hope not. I need to. No, I need I've, something else. <laughs> I've got such a huge hang. I've got such a huge hankering to play Final Fantasy 13. Corey too but i'm just at a stage in my life where i don't really unless it's like one of my favorite games ever i don't really want to be replaying things that i've already played before so not that chrono trigger wasn't yeah Yeah. chrono trigger was fun but yeah so that's it for the rpg club it'll be i guess noms will be starting sometime in early april so just uh we'll probably have a more concrete date for you next episode Mm -hmm. but uh you got an announcement too here don't you yeah so yeah it's, it's march so that means it's the return of the materia lockdown and uh, with our friend over at um, the uh, <laughs> Attack on Final Fantasy podcast, um, Attiki, um, he's come up with some uh, an interesting idea of some Nuzlocke rules for Final Fantasy VII, which I'm very keen on. So insane. you can still pl- it does sound insane, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, so you can play the material lockdown as per normal nothing's going to change with that if you just want to do a normal lockdown run but if you wanted to you can actually do a lockdown run with nuzlocke rules or nuzlocke rules without a lockdown run completely up to you but yeah just a quick round cup so uh, for those of you who don't know nuzlocke's like a pokemon challenge that people do where if you're well if your pokemon dies basically you can't revive it you have to go and release it into the wild 
and so like it's very it makes pokemon really difficult basically uh but yeah it, in that in the spirit of that we're going to be doing uh, for final fantasy 7 if a party member dies you can't resurrect them if they resurrect during story progression except a certain character then you are free to use them again <laughs> uh, items can only be used if the game allows you to save so you can't use any items literally at save point or on the world map uh, you can only get one tent for every party member so that's a maximum of nine tents that you can use in the game uh, you can only visit each shop once so once you've been to a shop you cannot go back to it um, inns are prohibited unless it's used for story progression like when you have to go to calm uh, and then game over is game over even if you have party members in reserve it doesn't sound that bad, but in combination with the lockdown rules, I think it could be it could possibly make your game unwinnable. I still think it sounds bad. Like, could you imagine not being able to use any items during a fight? Like, especially some of the boss fights when you just want to quickly heal up and you don't want to use up all your magic, or if you've used up all your magic and you need to quickly throw an emphor, and it's just like, mm. well, the thing that jumps out at me is if you remember the first time I did a lockdown, I. Didn't the entire game? I never got a character that could use uh, green material, green so I couldn't heal yeah. without items. So with these Nuzlocke rules, I don't know if it would be conquerable. I know <laughs> the the nine the nine tents scares me. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned in a different Discord, I drink tents like wine when I play these games. Like, I think it's an interesting sure, idea, though. Yeah, making sure I had enough shelters in Chrono Trigger was key. <laughs> It's just like, ah, safe point. Great, I could heal up. Right, yeah. <laughs> Move on to the next. But yeah, uh, only having nine tents. So and for those that but yeah. aren't long-time listeners, the Materia Lockdown itself is a challenge, like a community charity challenge that we have set up once a year um, where we, along with the community, play through Final Fantasy VII, the original or the remake, and a bot that we have on Twitter assigns you each character in FF7 what Materia they're allowed to use. So, for example... Barrett may only be allowed to use yellow materia or Tifa can only use purple, which is useless. Um, yep. And then there, there's different <laughs> combinations too. So you can pick how you want to play kind of. Um, or the bot picks for you. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun challenge and we're trying to raise money for the Motor Neurone Disease Association. So if you can get involved, please do. And you can go to www.materialockdown.com for more information. Absolutely. Okay, I think that's all we got for announcements. Shall we start the review? Yep, let's go for it. All right, so today we are reviewing Live Alive, which came to Japan only September 2nd, 1994, which was 10,052 days ago, or 27 years, 6 months, and 9 days. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, man. It's been a while since it's we... Uh, reviewed a game this old or i reviewed a game this old anyway yeah, i guess there was secret of mana but <laughs> um so yeah we never got this game and we've already mentioned the recently announced hd 2d remake but um it sort of became like a, a cult classic kind of even because there was a fan translation which i'm sure you've got more notes about down here below um but yeah we, we never got it despite how unique this game was and I, me, you, and I recently played the fan translation. I'd say it's a decent game. It's just a really interesting the history. I'm looking forward to. I haven't read the history, so I'm looking forward to see what you got for us. Yeah, well, it's very, it's very unique on, as a uh, <clears throat> as a fan translation itself because we played version two of the fan translations, and you don't often see a version two. But the yeah. version two is so superior. It was kind of um. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it in the story. I remember <laughs> when we were um. Uh, 
well, trying to follow along with some of the guides which were written with version one, it's like a lot of the names didn't match up, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, is- they were horrific." Yeah, <laughs> especially when you're trying to do, especially when you're trying to do some of the stuff in Pogo's thing, where you're trying to do, the, oh yeah, match up <laughs> the and, item yeah. combination stuff, and it's just like, what? <laughs> yeah. So one thing that we like to do on this show is at the start of the reviews, go over like what was going on sort of in pop culture at the time. What was the number one music, number uh, billboards, and the number one movie? Um, so. At the time of release in the U.S., the number one song was Boys to Men, I'll Make Love to You. And we don't have the songs prepped ahead of time, so we're playing it straight off YouTube. So I apologize if it sounds a little jankier than normal. (laughs) Now that I'm listening to it, I don't think I've heard this. I think you'll only recognize the chorus. Where it's just like, I'll make love to you. Let me see if I can like <laughs> jump ahead here to get to the chorus. Oh, here we go. Okay. I'm looking at the video right now too. It's got like a, a black woman in a very sensual red dress. Like she's ready to disrobe, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's ready. <laughs> do you like this song? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a classic. Yeah, it's um, you know it's not the sort of thing I, I go around listening to, but um, yeah, I, I remember this song when I was a kid. Interesting. Yeah, you can definitely tell it's dated. All right, but what about yeah, the UK? Yeah. Ah, so in the UK, we now this was actually like this this held the record for being number one for like the longest time ever for about ten or fifteen years, I think. This was number one for months and months and months. So I know this song very, very well. <laughs> this is Wet, 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 and Love is All Around Me. Is Wet, Wet, Wet the artist? or Wet, Wet, Wet is the artist, okay. yes. It's everywhere I go, love is all around me. If you I'm not sure I've heard this one either. Let it show. I think this was in Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, hmm. the movie, and it made it absolutely huge. And yeah, Got like it. I say, this was just number one for like best part of the whole summer. <laughs> Both of these are uh, kind of along the same vibe, style of music almost. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I'm really in love. <laughs> so if you were 10 at the time, let's see, how old would that have made me? Uh, not to, I guess math is easy. 1994. I guess I was four at the time of the release. Wow, it's not often we get games that almost predate me. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. So jumping into the history here, uh, let, what do we got? Live Alive was developed by Development Division Five of Square, noted as creators of the Final Fantasy series. Interesting. The game was the directorial debut of Takashi Tokita who had previously worked in a designer role for Hanjuku Hero and Final Fantasy IV. The original concept was born from the desire to make an RPG where players could experience multiple standalone stories at once, contrasting against Final Fantasy, where smaller stories served a grand narrative arc. Uh, I think that's interesting because it is very separate, like it just said there, but also the way it all comes together is like really well done at the end, I would say. Hmm. Um, yeah definitely they bring it all in at the end but yeah kind of just the difference in storytelling where you can choose your adventure as it were to get to the ending even if the ending's always the same and some stories were stronger than others but overall i thought it was executed pretty well Mm. Uh, the production was made possible by an expanding storage capacity of the super famicom rom 
with the aim being for players to be able to complete each section within a day. Hmm. I guess that's accurate for all of them. There's a couple that stretch on, but uh, several staff members, including designer Nobuyuki Inoue and lead programmer Fumiaki Fukaya, had worked on either Hanjuku Hero or the Final Fantasy series. Active production began in December 1993, though the entire development included early planning, including early planning, lasted one and a half years. It was produced for the Super Famicom's 16 megabit cartridge. Okay, interesting. Ooh, yep. Uh, Tokia had difficulty adjusting to his role as director, uh, particularly as he could... Uh, he couldn't be as hand-on with the graphical elements as he had been for, say, Final Fantasy IV. Uh, except for the menus and battles, uh, Fukuya was responsible for all the game's programming. Uh, Tokyo put an equal amount of effort into each world design. Many of the world's <clears throat> many of the world's suggestions came from other members of staff. So people suggested which kind of er- eras of time they'd like to set things in, and that's where they got all of the different scenarios from. Which I think is kind of cool, including like all the staff in the planning for it. I kind of want to see a screenshot. I kind of want to see a screenshot of the original Final Fantasy IV just to see how the graphics compare because that was one thing I wasn't crazy about in the game is I didn't think other than when it's in battles it doesn't actually look that great. Yeah, I think the yeah the sprite work wasn't kind of Square's normal quality, but yeah. we'll come to that anyway. But you know, this was just this was just some of the people who worked on those games going off and doing a side project. Right. Uh, where was I? <laughs> Did uh, the first world created. I mean, it was just in front of myself. With Tokyo choosing what he thought would be the best. Uh, the first world was created was the medieval edition, uh, which informed both the wider narrative and the gameplay design. Well, that's cool, that's in- like the, the last one they you play is the, the first one they did. Huh. Yeah, so they kind of set out what they wanted from that and then fed everything else into it. Awesome. Again, really, really cool way of doing it. Uh, the scenarios originally had um, a graduate um, graduating difficulty scale, uh, but Tokyo abandoned this so that players could tackle uh, the scenarios in any order they wished. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, Inyun was responsible for the battle system design, wanting to make a strategic experience um, which Tokyo described as a real-time shogi. Interesting. Played much shogi? I've never played shogi. Neither have I. <laughs> so I can't, I can't really go in on that one. I've never even seen um, someone play shogi. <laughs> um, another goal was to evolve the standard gameplay of RPGs at the time. One idea of Tokyo's was that was rejected involved not displaying hit points, but having the characters physically act like they had been injured or weakened as they took damage, um, which still actually made it into the sprite work of the final game. Right. Where, like, once they were getting low on HP, they'd get down on their knees and stuff and look like they were pretty beaten. A so, lot of the, even the uh, enemy characters had effects like that. Yeah, so I'm really glad they sort of kept that in. Uh, once production finished, the team split up to work on other projects within Square. Hmm. I wonder what they went on to do. Uh, yeah, the battle system is kind of cool because it's kind of like on a grid base. It's like a mix of a tactics RPG and a standard turn-based. Yeah, because you have to move your character within range to do certain attacks. And then if you're in certain positions, normally diagonally down from the boss is death. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Don't stand diagonal of any bosses because yeah. they will kick the crap out of you. <laughs> but yeah, it was interesting. But, you know, I learned that tactic. Right. You live in your learn. And if they had implemented the thing where the characters or each scenario gets gradually harder, they would have had to make your your character starting out 
more leveled up than they had mm-hmm. uh, initially been, or it just would have been unfair. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- and there's already a healthy amount of grinding in a few of the scenarios. So I'm glad they went with what they did. So you live alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but live and learn. Uh, a notable feature <laughs> of Live Alive uh, were the artists brought in to design the lead cast of the seven main sections. The artists were Yoshihide Fujiwara for in- The Inheritance, Yoshinori Kobayashi for The Contact, Osamu Ishiwada for the one... You know, the thing is, the scenario names, I don't know the scenarios by the names. It's like the cowboy and the caveman to me. Yumi Tamura did the mechanical heart, which I'm assuming is robot. Ryoji Minagawa, the strongest. I think that's the wrestler. Gosho Ayoma, Secret Orders, and Kazuhiko Shimamoto for flow. Additional character artwork, including designs for the King of Demons, was done by... Kiyofumi Kato of Square. Further in-game graphics were designed by Yukiko Sasaki, who worked as a map designer on Final Fantasy IV. Uh, Sasaki encountered difficulties with the graphics, struggling to design the secret order scenario, needed to cut elements such as telegraph poles from the strongest scenario. Secret orders, um, is probably the ninja one, right? Yeah, that is the ninja one. But yes, she, she struggled with the design of the actual kind of dungeon itself because it was so complex. I was about to say that dungeon. I can understand. Yeah, that was a pretty complex <clears throat> dungeon. And ninja was one of the, the longest scenarios because of that dungeon. But uh, yeah, I, what are, what would you do with telegraph poles in the strongest though? That's the wrestler <clears throat> I'm assuming. Yeah, I think it was doing some of the montage scenes. They would like go past, you know, almost like on a rocky sort of thing. Oh, okay. And it was just too, it was taking up too much storage space. So she was like, no, cut. <laughs> Interesting. Um, having multiple character designers was not in the original plan, but emerged to complement the omnibus storytelling. This style of having one artist artist in charge for each world was unusual for Square, who previously had a single graphic designer in charge of all art direction. I mean, mm. I think it's really cool, and it's what helps make this game stand out as unique, though, personally. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, Kofumi Kato was kind of that person at Square. She that was the person who was supposed to be the, the graphic designer and she did the medieval chapter. But uh, the other manga artists that they got in were from Shogeki Khan, which is like a big, it's nowadays it's quite a famous publishing house for manga in Japan and Tokyo. And it's interesting because the office for Shogeki Khan back in 1994 was just down the road from where Square or Square's offices were in Tokyo. Okay. So kind of like the fan, the fan theory is, is that Tokyo went out for a drink Bumped into someone from Shogeki Kahn. I was like, can I borrow seven of your uh, art designers, please? I mean, <laughs> that's kind of how Kingdom Hearts came about, too, with the the uh, Square Enix and Japan Disney sharing a building, and two execs ended up in an elevator together. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I've got an idea. Yeah, yeah that's, kind of, that's kind of what I like to think. Like, They are literally like the buildings like a stone throw away from each other. So it's just like, yeah, they must have all bumped into each other in a pub and gone, I've got an idea. Let's make a game together. <laughs> yeah, and I remember also um, when... I was listening to your episodes on the Bill's <clears throat> Trappings podcast. You talked a lot about the uh, the separate artists, and I, I remember thinking mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting. So, yeah, no, it, yeah, it's, it's it's a cool aspect that they added in, and it's all all and their main art, main, most of the artwork they did is just in the um, uh, what do you call it, the manual for the game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much where it ends. Then it's just like the sprite works based off of those drawings, you know, like they did with Final Fantasy and stuff, right? Um, 
yeah so fujiwara was known for his work in on martial arts manga um manga kenji uh for the protagonist inheritance female student um fujiwara deliberately went against the stereotypes of martial art heroines with large breasts <laughs> right very common at the <laughs> and time he designed, yeah very common at the time but he designed lee with like a tighter figure uh, Shimoto was originally going for an anime style design for his characters, but changed it to be more traditional manga when he saw the other designers work. Uh, Akira's partner Matsu was uh, physically based on actor uh, Yukasu Masida. I should have probably looked up who that was. <laughs> uh, and then Ishua based the protagonist of Wandering on the cowboy figures portrayed by Clint Eastwood. I can see that. I think that really did come across. Uh, Ayama designed Secret Order's protagonist Emma very quickly. <clears throat> and Tokyo's request uh, based Odie Lu's design on the Japanese warlord Oda uh, Nubungara. <laughs> That's interesting. It's like there's there was yeah. a real life Odie almost. Oh, there was, uh, especially with Secret Orders. Uh, the that's actually based on a true story. Oh, okay, that's cool. Yep. So yeah, the Secret Orders, the Ninja chapter, was actually based on a true story, and some of those characters did actually exist. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, isn't the guy that you rescue like he was a real samurai or whatever? Yeah, and he went on to um, uh, he went on to become like a political figure in China. Uh, in uh, yeah, he went on to become a political figure, uh, fighting for pro modernization. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's kind of cool how they went down those routes with a lot of the characters. Um, uh, but yeah uh, and then uh, Tamara was in the middle of her own work uh, when she was approached about the project and it was her only work in video in game character design uh, Kato designed the sprites uh, that's again that's the one who works actually at Square uh, designed the sprites for the medieval character based on templates from the Final Fantasy series with Orsted being directly based on the Warrior of Light I remember when we when I started the medieval scenario I was like oh he kind of looks like uh, like a Final Fantasy 1 warrior Kind of. It's almost like the same character design. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does, especially with the red outfit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the scenario was co-written by Tokita and Inoue. As with his other work, Tokita drew inspiration from the tone and dramatic moments of the manga Devilman, which I don't know anything about. Um, Pogo's story drew inspiration from the manga series First Human Giatris, while the wandering narrative was based on climactic scenes from classic westerns, including Shane. Uh, Flow made several references to classic mecha, manga, and anime. Along with its references to classic martial arts films, the name of the protagonist in The Strongest was made up of kanji symbols taken from the names of four famous wrestlers. I think that was pretty obvious. Yeah, I think they were famous wrestlers from Japan. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, and obviously Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Uh the Mechanical Heart narrative was inspired by 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Alien. I think that's pretty clear. Even even when you play it, you could figure that out. Um, Cube's name, created by a member of the development staff, was a reference to Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, King of Demons paid homage to Final Fantasy, where the relationships between Orsted and Straybo mirroring that between Cecil Harvey and Kane and Highwind. You know, I didn't think about that, but that's actually pretty spot on. Uh, Tokita was concerned about creating the medieval chapter due to its similarity to the ongoing Final Fantasy saga and mana series. The final chapter and its selectable lead protagonists emulated the freedom of choice present in romancing saga. Huh. That's also really interesting. 
Yeah, and it was something that worried him, but I kind of, yeah, it doesn't feel the same way that a romancing saga game does. Right. Romancing saga is kind of like you pick your character and that's it. You use that character and you can pick up others. But Do you think Saga Frontier, I know a little bit about that game, thanks to you guys, took its idea to have separate stories from Live Alive? I think he did work directly on it. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> His favorite storytelling uh, method. Well, well, he's most famous for creating uh, FF After Years. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's also kind of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is exactly yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, and I think he did the Final Fantasy Dimensions games as well. I could see that, which kind of get that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, Yoko Doddam Shimamura <laughs> served as a sole composer for Live Live. It was her first job after joining Square. Uh, after writing music for Capcom on multiple projects, including Street Fighter Two, Shimura moved to Square in 1993, uh, fueled by the wish to compose for RPGs. So she was fed up of making music for fighting games. <laughs> yeah. Um, Live Live was her first major RPG composition. Her only previous works were minor works on Breath of Fire before leaving Capcom. Uh, as with the rest of the game, uh, Shimamura's music reflected different eras uh, in which the narrative was set. The main theme appeared multiple times throughout the score, arranged in various different versions, an idea which was both shared by Shimamura and Tokia at the time. Uh, the boss theme, Megalomania, which is... Chef kiss. <laughs> Not Megalomania. Megalomania. <laughs> yeah, Megalomania. Uh, it was written to be frantic and exciting. Uh, for the motif audio, um, Shimura used a uh, stimulated pipe organ, incorporating it into the megalomania to reference its recurring threat. Not a villain uh, having a pipe organ in his theme. <laughs> How cliche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that shit. <laughs> Um, the music for the medieval period was the most difficult for her to write, uh, though it was among the first that was asked for by Tokyo. Upon hearing of her struggles, uh, FF legend Nabu Goddamn Umatsu <laughs> offered to help uh, writing the score for the medieval section, uh, which became easier once the theme uh, Overlord Overture and the battle theme Dignified Battle were completed. Uh, the music for Captain Square minigame was deliberately written to evoke the chiptune style of the NES and early arcade titles. Yeah, and I'd say in general, the music of this game is pretty good. Um, and on a personal level, I think Yoko Shimomura, is, Yoko goddamn Shimomura, is probably my favorite <laughs> video game composer, even over like Uematsu. Um, so I love everything she she does. <laughs> I mean, the Parasite Eve soundtrack is, come on. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. She She's generally known for doing amazing work. So. Yeah. And despite all my complaints about Final Fantasy XV, which she was the primary composer on, amazing soundtrack. So, <laughs> eh, I'm on the fence about that. Hmm. I think there's like two or three good songs, but the rest of it's kind of background music. But then that's just where video games have gone these days. True. Soundtracks uh, don't tend to be stellar throughout. Speaking of which, a soundtrack album for the game was released in August 1994 by NTT Publishing. The album was reissued on iTunes in July 2008 as one of the first releases from Square Enix Presents Legendary Tracks, a series of rare album re-releases. A physical re-release was published by Square Enix's music label in May 2012. In 2008, the tracks The Bird Flies in the Sky, The Fish Swims in the River, and Forgotten Wings were included on Dramatica, the very best of Yoko Goddamn Shimamura, a compilation of the composer's work at Square Enix. I kind of want that album now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Kiss of Jealousy. Those, those, those are all the songs from the Secret Orders Ninja chapter as well. Okay. 
Oh, yeah. no, they're not. They're from... No, they're from the... Um... Oh, I've forgotten what it is now. The one oh, where you're the martial arts master. And you, oh. You may or may not die. Yeah, Kung Fu scenario. <laughs> Kung Fu, yeah, that's the one. Uh, Kiss of Jealousy and Megalomania were released on the 2014 compilation album Memoria, which also featured tracks from Shimamura's work with Square. Birds in the Sky, Fish in the River, and Megalomania were later released in 2015 as downloadable content for the theater rhythm Final Fantasy Curtain Call. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, also in 2015, a tribute concert was held in Kichijoji at Club Seats, featuring performances by multiple musicians, including Shimamura, and a guest appearance from the game staff, including Tokita. Well, there you go. Yeah, this this it's surprising how popular this game was in Japan. <laughs> now I kind of wish I knew yeah. what uh, music these track names go to because I haven't like re-listened to the soundtrack or anything. But yeah, but it gets it gets a lot of love out in Japan. But yeah, the music is great. I, I really enjoyed um, for my <clears throat> trappings episodes that I've been doing, picking out the songs. And basically, because there's only like three or four songs per scenario, I could bring right. them all in. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. So Live Live was released on September 2nd, 1994. Uh, originally meant to be released in Japan before Final Fantasy VI came out. Uh, but unfortunately, delays occurred in its production and the release uh, the release order was reversed. So for the Final Fantasy VI to come out first, prior to its release. Uh, prior to its release, uh, Tomorrow created a prequel manga to the Mechanical Heart scenario. I'd love to read this. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't find it. I didn't know that. <laughs> I need to Google. I need, my Google foo was failing me this week. <laughs> um, uh, but nothing, uh, but later noting that she drew the manga without Square's permission. So that's maybe why I can't find it. Was uh, it released was re- even officially? I don't, I, it, it must have come out. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but who knows? Um, uh, it was a re- the game was released, uh, re-released, sorry, through Nintendo's virtual console for the Wii U on June seventh. Again, this is all in Japan. Yeah. Uh, June seventeenth, uh, two thousand fifteen. A virtual console port to the Nintendo 3DS on November twenty eighth, two thousand sixteen. Uh, and then the release was uh, prompted by fan-, fan demand for the title. And then publisher Square Enix had uh, to get permission from all the guest illustrators before the re-releases could happen. Wow. I'm surprised yeah. they let the artists keep the like the rights or the abilities to do that in the first place. Yeah, but they, they were all drunk in a pub when they made the deal, Scott. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> Tokyo was going, yeah, I'll sign it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so they had to get all the uh, they had to get all their permissions. And then characters from Live Live were featured in the 20th anniversary crossover. Uh, with the mobile games uh, Holy Dungeon and Final Fantasy Legends, the Space Time Crystal. I know that game. Well, I, Wait, I'm, pre- I'm pretty up on my uh, my FF knowledge, and I don't know what that that's, is. That that's Final Fantasy Dimensions Two. Oh. <laughs> Bill has a bit of a wow. history with that game. Oh, I hate that game. Fuck you, Square. <laughs> Final Fantasy Dimensions 2 is the worst piece of shit ever. Can't believe you made me pay 15 quid for it. Bill. Oh, garbage. It's okay. Dimensions 2 can't hurt you now. It's over. <laughs> I spent 15 quid, man. It hurts. It still hurts. <laughs> Maybe I'll nominate it for uh, RPG Club. <laughs> no, don't. Oh my god, please. <laughs> you can't you can't understand how bad that game is. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was yeah in in Japan it was called uh, uh, Legends Space Time Crystal. Over here they called it Dimensions Two, and it was just appalling piece of crap. Anyway, over to you, Scott. <laughs> Live Alive remains exclusive to Japan for a few more months. A rumor reported by GamePro was that the title was originally planned for an English release. 
In an interview with the magazine Superplay, Square Localization staff member Ted Woolsey said that its uh, overseas release was unlikely due to its low graphical quality compared to other popular titles at the time. A fan translation was created by noted online translation group Eon Genesis. This is one of the most polished fan translations ever, going as far as creating different text fonts to match the feel of each scenario. Speaking in later interviews, Tokita felt that his experience with Live Alive helped solidify his directing and storytelling. Speaking on the subject of a remake, Tokita said it would depend entirely on fan demand. In July 2020, Square Enix filed a trademark for Live Alive in the United States, and the 2D HD remake is now confirmed and due for release July 22, 2022. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, like when I, when I was I was watching the direct live, and when they announced that, I was like, "No fucking way! I cannot You'd believe this." You literally just finished the game. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're welcome, everybody. <clears throat> you're welcome. I it's because of me yep. and Bill. This always happens, you know. This Saga Frontier got a remaster. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Chrono Cross is getting a remaster for some reason. Thank God we haven't played that one yet. So <laughs> nearly, I nearly, I nearly that nearly won a vote at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe soon. I, I I'm gonna play it when it comes out the uh, Chrono Cross remaster. I will too. And I'll probably buy the live live one just because I really enjoyed the game and I feel like Square should get some money for it. I mean, because you know, hey, they don't—they don't never know. Money. If it's successful, it could be a there could be a live alive too one day. So <laughs> maybe, or maybe I won't give them any money for it because I had to pay for Final Fantasy Dimensions too. We'll see. Revenge. <laughs> um, uh, Famitsu uh, reviewers enjoyed the game's variety, but found the graphics lacking compared to other uh, Famicom titles at the time, which I think me and Scott kind of agree on. I do like the sprite work, but it kind of feels like a subpar Final Fantasy Five. Yeah. Definitely is many, not a pretty game to look at if outside yeah. of battles anyway. <clears throat> yeah. In its review, Micro Magazine publication um, Game Criticism lauded the attempt for its uh, omnibus storytelling style but uh, and use of popular manga artists, but ultimately felt it lacked substance and heavily criticised uh, the final chapters and imbalance between the uh, mature narrative and low difficulty of the gameplay. I think when they say final chapter, they just mean the one where you have to get all your gang together. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> you have to get the band back. I didn't really find the game easy necessarily. I wouldn't say like there's several parts that you kind of have to grind. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, well, especially if you try and do that hundred percent thing in the in the ninja chapter. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but however, the tra- the fan translation did give the game a cult following overseas, as we know from um, Angry Ass black dude <laughs> I, was to, I was gonna bring him up in a second he's for years been telling everybody in the community play live alive he's like live alive's uh town crier making sure everybody knows about it so uh yep. i think it's partially thanks to him that we're here playing this today actually wasn't this like one of his hastes or something when he was a patron um n- no no not not quite but it was something that he got into the fan translated vote when we used to do those right okay um yeah i can't i can't fully remember but it is it's directly related to him <laughs> Thank his, you. his game's ghost lion there you go <laughs> which i've also played and reviewed check that out in our backlog it's a great game uh but yeah he he loved it and then yeah i think i kind of liked the game a lot especially i liked um mechanical heart um the uh, the, the robot chapter i loved that one and the other the other sections were good, but it was once you one when you when you unlock and play the medieval chapter, boom! I can see exactly why he loved it. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, the game sold uh, two hundred seventy thousand copies, which at the time was considered a failure. 
compared to the company's Final Fantasy releases, which, you know, yeah, <laughs> it will be. Probably one reason we never got it here. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's like comparing gold to lead. Yep. <laughs> you can't, you, no one can compete with the Final Fantasy Juggernaut. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but that's it for the history. That, that was uh, super interesting, a lot of it. But uh, we're going to take a yeah, quick yeah. break before we move on to the gameplay. Attack on Final Fantasy is a podcast where IP tried to complete every single Final Fantasy game using attack only. In between the weekly main episodes, I often post other bits and bobs, like games I play on a whim or episodes featuring my lovely wife. Help me, you've got to help me, I've been kidnapped by a podcasting lunatic. So, come and join me over at Attack on Final Fantasy, wherever you get your podcasts. I think I'm pretty much everywhere these days, you lucky, lucky people. Okay, we are back, and today, in order to keep the episode short and sweet, we're going to be talking about gameplay instead of story. So, uh, do you want to kind of describe the gameplay, or yeah, <clears throat> yeah? So, um, it contains uh, the basic battle elements of any role-playing video game. Characters explore dungeons, towns, or similar areas, fight enemies, gain experience to level up. <clears throat> However, the game ensues some elements uh, typical of the genre, <clears throat> such as magic points and uh, money which is nice because you can use your most powerful abilities like as many times as you want to uh, yeah that is lovely <laughs> there's one move in in the wrestler chapter where once you get it it's like that should be the only move you're using <laughs> abu gassi yeah that one i can't remember can't remember the name I, it, I think i kept calling it abu gary but uh yeah i think it's called abu gassi yeah but yeah you learn that off the old man and then because it hits them and turns them around then they have to waste a move turning back around right <laughs> it's great um, so there are dungeons in most of the chapters, but uh, each chapter, even outside of battle, plays a little differently, I would say, as far as um, what you're actually doing. It's not strictly just, you know, going through towns and dungeons and all that. Uh, but we can cover each scenario uh, a little bit more when we get to story and now. Uh, but the battle system is more or less the same in each chapter. So 
um, battles take place on like a four by four, maybe it's like eight, six by six or eight by eight. I can't remember grid kind of like final fantasy tactics, except for not, um, not asymmetric. So you move your characters around the battlefield. You've got your enemies on each tile as well. Uh, yeah. your characters I I more like chess. Yeah. I guess you could say that tactics. Um, cause you know, I'm, I've been playing um triangle strategy, which is exactly like final fantasy tactics. <laughs> I know we're in a rush, but are you enjoying tri- triangle strategy? Oh, I, do, I have only played like a couple of minutes of it. Okay. Um, I played like the first battle and got through a bit of the story, but I think I'm going to enjoy it. Okay. Um, one of my favorite YouTubers described it as probably the best SRPG since Final Fantasy Tactics. Nice. I'm a. Uh, it's on my short list. I just got to get a couple games out of the way. Um, Corey will love it. Yeah, he loves strategy <laughs> RPGs. Um, so certain attacks that you use change tiles into damage zones. So like. One attack might be a straight line of tiles from your character, or it could might be a ring of every tile around your character, or just diagonally from your character. So it just depends on the moves. Um, yeah, and sometimes it would randomly heal your characters. I couldn't, I couldn't ever quite work out what was causing because I think in the ninja one you could set the floor on fire, and at the beginning of the dungeon that used to hurt you, and at the end of the dungeon it would heal me. And I was just like, yeah, I've no <laughs> idea what I've picked up that has caused this effect, but something has. If I remember right, the descriptions of the abilities aren't always the most helpful. Um, isn't, no, some of them are like Ufu says Ufoya. <laughs> it's just like, and then he does like some sort of like E Honda slap, <laughs> or like in the uh, the caveman scenario where all the skills are called like Unga Bunga or Poke oh, Poke. Boom, boom. <laughs> yes, stuff like that. Boom 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 is one of my favorites. I like yeah. That. And there was like one where he spat on. Um, so your characters usually take up a single tile. Enemies typically uh, are bigger sprites and take up multiples. Not always, but especially the bosses. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of got to like maneuver your way around the bosses because, like Bill mentioned earlier, the bosses have skills just like you do that go out in different areas of effect. So you kind of want to like juggle moving your character to safe zones while also being bold enough to be close enough to do your whatever attacks, depending on the character you're controlling. You can. Um, it's I kind of like the strategy, and it's it's also on like a like an active time battle type system where moving takes up a certain amount of turns, but also your abilities have a uh, charge and cooldown aspect to them, whereas yeah, a lot of the more no, powerful no, abilities. Take more There's time. There's no indicators on the screen for that sort of stuff, but you kind of you get a good feel for it as you're going through it, don't you? Right. And if yeah, you're on the ropes, it can be this, kind of it can be kind of a risk reward type system as far as like okay, if I use my powerful attack now, I might die before I can get it off. But if if it does go off, then I might win the battle. You know. So it's kind of like a you get a feel, especially after you've been playing for a while, of when to use what attacks. Hmm. Unless you're in the wrestling oh, yeah. the wrestling <clears throat> scenario, and then you just use Abigail over and over. <laughs> yeah, Abigail, <laughs> Abigail for the win to kill Hulk Hogan. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the combat. <clears throat> it's I kind of they mixed it up. They mixed it up nicely enough between scenarios. Like I say, I mean, it's only it's only simple little changes. Like, yeah, in in like the wrestling uh, one, you have to learn <clears throat> the wrestlers' moves as they hit you. So the wrestlers would hit you with a move, your character would learn it, then you could then use it back. And then you keep those moves throughout the scenario. Or like, you know, you go to the Old West one, everything's guns. So you do everything at a distance. Mm -hmm. They're just very small changes that they add to the gameplay, but it made it feel fresh for every scenario. 
despite the fact it was the same basis that you've got. Like I say, you're on a chessboard, try and move about and um, hitting, hitting these characters until they die. Yeah. <laughs> but it was good. And it also, because it, because it was similar as well, it didn't make it difficult when you switch scenarios and suddenly you didn't have any leveled up characters anymore. Yep. Because as we mentioned, they got rid of the scaling difficulty between the scenarios. But there's a lot of super bosses snuck into this game. Yeah. Well, since you brought it up, I didn't actually do the super boss, believe it or not. So do you want to talk about the big koi? Oh, hang on. Which, which one? Oh, the big koi. Yeah, yeah. No, I did do the big koi. <laughs> that was great. You I mean, you're fighting a big giant fish. <laughs> Whenever people um, talk about Live Alive, I feel like it's always a screenshot of the, the fish fight that they show yes yeah and the thing is as well it's just like you have to really grind uh, against these bloody ghosts because there's there's not a lot of areas where enemies respawn in these chapters some of them don't have any enemy respawns like uh, the mechanical heart robot chapter has no fighting except the end boss fight there's like there's the mini game that you can play captain square mm -hmm. but you don't actually get any experience or reward for that it's just a mini game right <laughs> So, yeah, so that, that one is just like you play out the scenario and then do the end boss fight. And there's no grinding in between. <clears throat> so it's kind of like Cube's already where he needs to be for you to beat the boss. You just have to make sure you do it correctly. But, yeah, the Koi Carp thing was just like if you could, because you could accidentally bump into him while walking through the water in the castle. And if you did, you were dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, he, I mean, there was another thing in, in there, which was like a... Um, it was like a way of, it was like a secret boss and getting a secret weapon. And it was the most complicated thing I think I've ever experienced in a video game to find a secret. Hmm. Like it almost felt like a bug in the code. Do you remember that? Where you had to walk down the corridor until you could see the, the diamond at the very end of, on the wall of a corridor. Then you had to walk back up 10 steps and then walk back down. The doorways would be gone and there would be a pot there. You'd have to give the pot a coin, then walk back up, and then there'll be a new door that you could go through. And it was I heard about this from you and Disa, but I had planned to do this, but I went too far into the scenario and locked myself out to where I couldn't get back there. So oh, no. <laughs> I wasn't. I yeah, wasn't. No, I mean, and I hated the ninja. Well, I didn't hate it. It was my least favorite scenario, probably the ninja. So yeah, I I wasn't about to replay it. <laughs> no, I'd been. I see. I'd been advised to follow a guide for that, and I think it was one of my favorites. Just based on that, because there were so many secrets dotted about. And then like, yeah, when I did that, I was like reading the guide. I mean, like, what is this? What is this going on about? Like, what right. are they talking about? And I just followed it step by step. And then it unlocked it. And I was just like, wow, who <laughs> on earth found that? And like, yeah, you, you know, there's a scripted boss fight and you get the best sword in the game. And it's just like, nice, amazing. But I think yeah, there was, was another really koi too loved. in the final chapter boss that you could do i can't remember if i i remember i tried finding I kept, it i kept running into random bosses in the final chapter <laughs> yeah like they'll just be they'll just be normal enemies and then just suddenly you just like uh there's a big giant boss here and i've only got my cowboy yeah <laughs> and he's not prepared for this um so some aspects we haven't mentioned yet there are status effects which can be pretty uh damning um items i, I would say are more important in this game than most rpgs kind of uh, no, i'm on the fence yeah <laughs> Uh, many items. <laughs> uh, let's see you there is a leveling up system and when you when a character dies this is important they collapse and can no longer move and if they are attacked again while they're in this collapsed state they're permanently dead for the rest of the battle so yeah. assuming you're playing a scenario where you have more than one character you also got to prioritize like making sure to bring back 
the other characters that are collabs. It's kind of an interesting system. Um, yep. So I think that about covers the battle system. Do we want to talk about real quick some of the the different things that go on outside of battles, gameplay wise, in the scenarios? Yeah, yeah. Like you mean like the giant mecha robot? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> also, because that's in Akira. So yeah, the, the character is called Akira. <laughs> yep. And uh, that's called what's what, what do we call that chapter? Uh, I, I can't called, remember the chapter names. I think it's called Flow, but okay. um, that is the official one. But I can't remember what we called it. Uh, Mecca. Uh, but yeah, but he's... Oh, Mecca. Okay, yeah. So yeah, he's got... Um, he has, uh, what do you call it, psychic powers. So you can stand next to someone and push X or whatever to talk to him. Then you push circle and he goes... Right. Turns yellow and then reads their mind. And that was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I found that really fun, sort of going around and reading people's minds and hearing like the alternative version of what they're telling you. <laughs> And then some of sometimes you had to read people's minds in order to advance the plot to get information out of them that they weren't willing to give up, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I did too. Mecha was one of my uh, my favorite scenarios, I think. Um, and I liked in the um, I liked in the Kung Fu chapter where because I did because most of most of the game I played blind, but um, the Kung Fu chapter I actually uh, yeah I did blind as well. And depending on who you train most during that section depends on who you end up as at the end. Right. Like I won't, I won't give away spoilers until we do the story next week, but <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the but more yeah, intricate parts that. of the gameplay might be better served when we talk about the story, just so we're not like repeating ourselves kind of. Yeah. But I like that. Cause I ended up with Lee and it was like, then everyone else ended up with the fat kid. And I was just like, hmm. Yeah, it's like okay, I don't know, don't know how that happened, uh, but yeah, it was just like yeah, it was cool. I just I like those little touches that they put in there. Yeah, and the like for example, also like the cowboy scenario that uh the way that chapter plays is very different than every other chapter. Um, you already mentioned how in the robot scenario you don't even battle until the final boss of that scenario, or only boss of that scenario. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm trying to think of it's, yeah, so, it's, it's the same in the cowboy because you only get like two or three scripted fights yeah and then the rest of it is literally just <laughs> planting items to, to reduce the amount of enemies in the final battle wrestler really cool. plays more like street fighter where it's just like select the boss um mm. and then i'm trying which ones have we talked about? we got cowboy wrestler mecha uh ninja ninja is probably the most traditional of them as far as just being like a dungeon crawler with battles um they do punish you for the there's like a system in there where if you kill you can either kill 100 people or try to be stealthy um i kind of gave up on stealth pretty early myself but i never did yeah so get to 100 so because i think i mentioned that i followed a guide but that was to do like a perfect run which didn't involve because you because yeah it kind of says you can either kill no one or kill everyone and the pacifist run of killing no one is like almost virtually impossible it's so difficult to do um and then the run that i did was just like you i think i killed like 70 people but it was to get the optimum amount of grinding just to make my character really nice and powerful right <laughs> um are we forgetting any scenarios uh robot right so robot i know you really liked robot but robot was one of my least favorites um i liked the story but the the way the base was laid out i found myself getting lost in like getting confused about where i was supposed to go like uh maybe, square I, loop. maybe i'm just bad at directions but <laughs> i was like okay now go to this think, deck and then to this deck <laughs> i think for me like the fact that it was heavily influenced on alien and uh, space odyssey 
Like those are two of my favorite films. You know, I've so, never seen Space Odyssey. I have seen Alien. Oh, have you not? Oh, it's, uh, Space Odyssey is bonkers. Uh, do you, have you seen many uh, Stanley Kubrick films? I'm not I sure. love him as a director. Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Clockwork uh, Orange. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen both of those. Yeah. Yeah, so you know he he does films like um, like Full Metal Jacket is kind of like starts off as a traditional war film, goes bonkers. Yeah, <laughs> this starts off as like a traditional space film, goes completely bonkers. Um, like, have you seen In- uh, Interstellar? No, I don't think with Matthew with Matthew McConaughey, like a fairly recent film. Oh, actually, I have seen that. Yeah, that is basically like the modern day version of Two Thousand One, where they it kind of starts off as like a crazy space adventure then ends up being some sort of weird psychological thing yeah i mean i did like <laughs> the story in that one. yeah stanley kubrick though is the master of it i really recommend it if you okay. get a chance to watch it very tense though Gotta be right, ready so there's <laughs> also kung fu which we kind of alluded to and that just yep. leaves a uh, caveman which <laughs> you could fart <laughs> yeah yeah there's like a system where you had to you could fart to detect where enemies were in that one or how close enemies were. Um, K-Man was yeah. not one of my favorite ones. Uh, but it, no, it wasn't wasn't for me. Lots of people seem to like it. Um, I liked the storytelling, like the fact that because it's set in medieval, uh, sorry, not medieval times, like uh, prehistoric times, the storytelling in Caveman's uh, all done through emojis, essentially. Like just a small picture would appear above a character's head to try and explain what they were saying. But the only noises that were coming out would be, ooh, ooh, ooh. I think that's so why I didn't just, like it is because there, there was no dialogue. I mean, I could I could follow what was going on, but it just made it hard for it to be compelling to me. Yeah, but I like I liked that kind of storytelling. But again, I kind of fell off with I fell off with that chapter a little bit. I was a bit like mm, not not so interested. That was one of the ones but that required again, a lot of grinding. And then there was also the combination of uh, the the shop where you could combine two items to get better equipment, oh, which yeah, was a pain in the butt. Like, but not as a pain as but as in flow mecha chapter with Akira. Yeah. Where it would just be like, oh no, I can't make anything. And then it's just like you have to keep trying it until it does it. I can't imagine I, how it's... difficult that would have been without uh, save states. Because I oh. definitely scummed the hell out of that part. Oh no, I did I didn't use save states. I just did like fast forward. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Selecting the same items over and over again. <laughs> um the the mecha chapter was one of my favorites, but that system there almost single handedly ruined it for me so <laughs> yeah it, it was bullshit so yeah so it's essentially but both of those chapters have crafting in them and both of those crafting things are just shit <laughs> yeah especially when you're trying to figure out what you need to compare and the translation doesn't match all the guides so <laughs> um but yeah i think that about covers the gameplay we'll we'll cover some of the more specific things uh next week when we do the game uh the story part of this review um, but you got any final thoughts on the gameplay before we move on to the outro? No, it was it was very good. I I did enjoy it. Like I thought the battle system was good fun. And yeah, I liked all the little the little tweaks that they did outside of battle to make uh, the different scenarios interesting. It's kind of, it's where this game shines, really. Yeah, I like the battle system a lot too. There are a few aspects that really dragged the game down for me personally, but I did like the gameplay overall. So. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more specific feelings when we do our ratings as well. But for now, uh, we need to move on to our outro.
Okay, so thanks for listening to part one of our Live Alive review. Um, so next week, I'll be back with Bill again, I think. We'll be doing okay. the uh, part two and hopefully finishing this review. And Rich will probably be hopping on at the end, hopefully, to cover the final section of the Chrono Trigger RPG Club with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a tea time for that. Thank you. <laughs> Separately. Um, the RPG Club, one more reminder, the goal is to beat Chrono Trigger by March 20th, Sunday. So then nominations Sunday, begin Sunday, Sunday. a couple weeks after that. So you're running out of time. Beat the game. Launch into yeah. our plugs. Do you want to yeah. do this? So yeah, yeah, you can rate and review us on your favorite podcasting apps. Some of them, at least. Uh, a really good one now is that you can very simply, if you're listening to us on Spotify, just hit the five star thing, and it really helps promote the show. Uh, we've also got a Patreon where you can get early access to the episodes, add free episodes, lots of extra reviews. There's tons on there now and then again also you can get involved with helping us nominate and a vote on the next rpg club game so if there's a game you want us to play for the rpg club next now's your time to sign up for the patreon and get involved with that so you can find all that and more at patreon.com forward slash rpg after years now's the time uh as far as twitch goes we do stream to twitch usually we're not streaming today just for time's sake um, but you can find us at twitch.tv slash RPG after years, usually at 9 a.m. Eastern time. If you'd like to email the show, you can find us RPG after years at gmail.com. And if you want to find us on Discord, you can find the link in our show notes and on our pinned tweet on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter, you can find the show at RPG years. If you want to get in touch with me personally, I'm at the Scott spot. And I'm at Metonica, M-E-T-U-N-N-I-C-A. Well, that's it for part one of our Live Alive review. And uh, just want to thank Demon King Bill for being here. It's nice to get a Bill episode every now and then, I guess. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And it's lovely to have Scott on too. <laughs> I try. Uh, join us next week as we go across every era. Another like kind of time travel game, if you think about it, I guess, with yeah, the definitely. audio stuff. Um, <laughs> but until that episode, I'm Scott. And I'm Bill Dio. <laughs> See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to the RPG After Years. Bye, Space Cow people. Bye. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. <laughs>